1: This is your daily real estate syndication show, and we're introducing some new segments called the Real Estate Syndication Show Highlights, where we are bringing you a look back at episodes focused on a specific topic that we believe added a lot of value to you in your syndication journey. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Also, hit the notification bell so you can continue to know when new shows come out. Have a blessed day. Our guest is Tom Woolwright. Thanks for being on the show, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me, Whitney. It's great to be here. We'll go right into the syndication business and the tax stuff people need to know about syndication.
2: I think a lot of people have heard about this carried interest rule, where it's no longer a one-year holding period for your carried interest to be long-term capital gain, but it is a three-year holding period. And there's been some discussion, is it, is it not? I will tell you, it is. Okay, it's a three-year holding period. So what do you do if you've got somebody comes to you two years into the project, which we have a lot of that going on right now, and they say, we're going to pay a ridiculously low cap rate for this property, and how do you not sell it? Well, but you don't want to pay twice the capital gains tax when you sell that property. So that's where, again, you meet with your tax advisor and figure out a way to have that carried interest turn that into a 1031, a like-kind exchange. So we've actually done that with a number of syndicators where the limited partners, they don't do the like-kind exchange. And the general partners, the developers, the syndicators do the like-kind exchange. It's not an easy thing to do. There's a lot of ice to dot and T's to cross to do it. But when you're talking about millions and millions of dollars of capital gain, and you're talking about the difference between a 20% rate and a 40% tax rate, maybe it's time to actually spend a little effort trying to figure out how to avoid that tax.
1: We're going to have to make sure we have a very good tax strategist on our team to be able to figure that one out. For sure. So you had mentioned capital gains. You know, what about a difference in like long-term versus short-term capital gains? I've heard people mention that. Could you explain that a little bit?
2: Well, and that's what I'm talking about with carried interest. So normally if you're under a year, that's a short-term capital gain, which is taxed at ordinary income rates, upwards of 40%. If you are over a year, then it's taxed at long-term capital gains rate, somewhere between zero and 20%. If you have a carried interest, though, which is how most syndicators make their money, is with a carried interest, that's a three-year term in order to be long-term capital gains. And that's my point, is that if you're in that two to three-year period, and you're thinking, wow, this is long-term capital gains, it may be for your investors and not for you. So that's where you sit down with your tax divider say, okay, the investors are fine with their long-term capital gain. I'm not going to be so fine because mine's a short-term capital gain tax at 40%. So that's where you really have to pay attention. Now, we look at 1031 exchanges. And by the way, you only have to do a 1031 exchange if you've carried interest long enough to hit the three-year rule. You know, if you're two and a half years in, you may only need to hold that new property for another year. And then you can sell it. And then now your long-term capital gains if you don't want to you know, reinvest in another property. So that's another thing to look at is short-term versus long-term. That's a big, big
1: difference. So on the passive investor side now, I'd like for you to elaborate maybe the benefits of investing passively into tax benefits as an LP. But then what else do they need to know on the tax side? What do they need to make sure their accountant is aware of before they go and invest in this syndication?
2: Well, the first thing they need to look at is what's their tax rate, right? If they're in a high tax bracket, then they want to be sure to use those losses as fast as possible. The challenge is they're probably going to be, if they're a passive investor, they're probably going to be passive losses. Now, passive losses can only offset passive income. What that means if you don't have any other income but, like, say, your salary, then your passive losses are going to sit there. Now, you don't lose them. They just carry forward to the next year, and they carry forward indefinitely. So you don't have to worry about losing those passive losses. And by the way, when the property is sold, those passive losses all free up. So at the worst, you're going to get them in the year that you sell the property. And when you consider and you say, well, that's just a wash, but it isn't, because your gain may be long-term capital gain, but your loss is ordinary. So you may be taxed at 20% on your gain, but yet the loss is offsetting your wages that are taxed at 40%. So that's still a really good deal for the investor. The other thing that I can't believe I'm saying this, but there are some investors that actually should be investing through their solo 401k. Okay, You don't want to do it through an IRA because if you do it through an IRA, you'll be subject to the unrelated business income tax because of the debt financed income, presuming that you're not paying cash for this property. So even IRAs can be taxed. So you have to be a little careful about you know investing through an IRA. But a 401k isn't subject to the unrelated business income tax. And here's kind of a fun thing. You can roll your IRA into a solo 401k and avoid that income tax on the debt financed income. So that's actually a really big deal. If you've got an IRA and you could have a solo 401k because you're in business for yourself, you really ought to be looking at creating that solo 401k before you make that investment.
1: And as we're on that topic, I did have a listener question that's related. And as far as related to the SDIRA and the solo 401k investors, and they were talking about the unrelated business income tax and the unrelated debt financing tax. On the syndication side, is there a type of syndication structure that would help eliminate those taxes? The way
2: you'd eliminate is to not have IRAs investing, right? (laughs) I mean, that's really the way to do that. Obviously, if you're not leveraged that's another way to do it. Seriously, those are the two ways, right? You either don't leverage or you leverage, but make sure that people
1: roll their IRAs into the 401k. 401ks aren't subject to it. So then you don't have to worry about it. Our guest is Ted Lanzaro. Thanks for being on the show, Ted. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you for having me. I have investors that contact me and say, you know, do you have somebody that can help me with this? Like they have a CPA, maybe they've used for years and years and years, but they really need a tax strategist, somebody that's going to just really dive into their specific scenario. And how do we find somebody like that, like yourself, is maybe some questions that we should ask that CPA when we're developing that relationship to find out if they're really going to just sit down with us like you are, have that call to really figure out, you know, our specific scenario, what's best, as opposed to just Really, filing our taxes for us? There's a lot of fantastic CPAs out sure. there, and a lot of them specialize in different things. I'm a real
0: estate CPA. I'm a real estate CPA because I'm a real estate investor, also. So I kind of became naturally, you know, I started out 29 years ago, we started working with real estate investors and saw what was going on and said, hey, you know, I could do some of this myself. I started my investing career just buying single-family and multifamily properties down in Southeast Florida, Fort Lauderdale area. And as I started investing, I also started going to real estate investment club meetings and met other investors. And they found out I was a CPA and they asked me to start doing tax presentations for these clubs. And I started going around and speaking. And the more I did that, the more clients I got. I think the biggest question that you can ask is, are you also a real estate investor? Because that's why my clients hire me, because I speak their language. I can go and walk through a building and tell you within 5% how much repairs are going to be needed. I can write a scope of work, you know, to build out a building or something. So it's those kind of specialized skills that are
1: what my clients like about working with me. I like that a lot. Finding that CPA that's in this business as well. Obviously, they're going to have a different take on the business if they're in it as well and investing and on the day of the day. But, you know, you mentioned earlier the real estate professional status. And could you elaborate on what that is for maybe the listener that hasn't heard of that? And maybe some of them has, but, you know, it's not clear what that actually means. So there's three types of real estate investors, essentially, from a tax standpoint. You have your passive
0: investors. Those would be the equivalent of your limited partners in your syndications. So they're not part of the decision-making. They're just putting their money in and for a return on their investment, right? The second type would be an active investor. So if you're an active investor, you might be somebody who's managing your own properties, You're the guy who's putting the tenants in, calling the plumber when the toilet clogs, you know, those kind of things. As long as you put in enough hours, you're allowed to deduct up to $25,000 a year against your ordinary income, assuming that your ordinary income doesn't exceed $150,000 a year. Once your adjusted gross income exceeds $150,000 a year, then you're basically phased out. Any losses you take in your real estate are carried over. But if you're a real estate professional, that's somebody who works full-time in the real estate business, either as a developer, broker, syndicator, real estate agents can qualify also. So people that are doing that and are documenting at least 750 hours a year, and it's more than half of what their total work activity is. And if you do that... Have the ability to take unlimited losses against your ordinary income. So, a real estate broker who has a $40,000 loss on a rental property could allocate that $40,000 loss against his $200,000 of real estate broker income during the year, assuming that he keeps track of the hours in order to qualify as a professional.
1: Great. Well, I appreciate you laying that out. And so, Obviously, it's going to benefit those that can do it full-time, they are able to be a real estate professional. Should we all pursue to be a real estate professional if we're doing this full-time? If all you're doing is working in the real estate business,
0: and there's a few tricks to this because your work in the real estate business could be simultaneously as a landlord, a broker, or a syndicator, you could be doing multiple things. So there are some tricks that you have to make in an election to aggregate your activities in order to be considered a professional because what the IRS says, it's not just 750 hours, it's 750 hours per property, unless you elect to do that aggregation that I was just talking about. So there's a trap built into the rules, right? And what I tell people is, one, it's just a two sentence election on your tax return. First of all, for me, it's making sure I check the right box On my software when I'm doing your return and I have a checklist to make sure to do that every year, right? But also on your end, it would be making sure that you have a log or are using some sort of app that, you know, tracks your work time so that you can prove that you have a 750-hours of time in per year, and also that it's more than half of what you do. So, I had a client who has a full time job, and she said to me, I'm a real estate professional. And I said, I don't think you qualify. You have a full time job as an IT person, right? And she said, No, but I also work 2,000 hours at least in my real estate business, and I can prove that I work more than half my time in real estate. And I said, Look, I mean, 2,000 hours as an IT person. 2001 hours as a real estate professional, when do you sleep, right? So I said, I don't think you qualify and you don't have a log. So she says, well, you're fired. I'm going to do my taxes myself. And, you know, I'm going to take real estate professional status. And I said, okay, well, that's okay. Do what you want to do. So two years later, the phone rings and I pick up the phone and it turns. she says, I just got called down to the IRS's office and they want they're questioning my real estate professional status. Can you help me? And I said, no, I told you, you were wrong. I can't help you. You don't need me now. You don't need a CPA. You need a lawyer or be a magician. You don't need a CPA anymore. There's nothing I can do. You know, you have to pay the extra taxes and the penalty because you don't qualify. And I told you that. So it's one of those things where if you're legitimately in the business, it's an excellent opportunity to be able to deduct the rental losses that most of the time, are going to come from depreciation, right? You know, so because we're not buying as real estate investors, we're not buying real estate
1: to lose money. We're buying real estate to make money and have that money sheltered by the depreciation on the property. Now, and that was going to be a question of mine too, as far as you know, the people who are working still have a W two job. Could they still claim this? This I've heard similar stories where people are trying to be able to log their time. They claim they work just as many hours in real estate. Is there ever a time where that would work? where I have a W-2 job or position, but I can still claim, I just have to make sure I'm working more hours in the real estate and I'm logging that time up to 750 hours or more? Or is it just like, that's a major red flag. I just shouldn't even pursue that. It
0: is a bigger red flag when you have W-2 income from somewhere else, right? But that's where keeping the log comes in. So let's say you had a W-2 job that was only a thousand hours a year, right? It's a part-time job. Okay. Some people could do that. And let's say that then you spent the other half of your time working as a real estate broker or a syndicator or a developer. And in those scenarios, you put in that 1,100 hours. You know, So now you've got over 750 hours and you're more than half because you've got 1,100 real estate hours compared to your 1,000 W-2 hours. In that scenario, as long as you've tracked that then you don't have a problem. You may have a larger risk of audit, but when you do get called in, say, to the IRS's office or if they write you a letter or request your log, you have it already. Here you go. Here's my log. Okay, end of story now. Now it's all good, you know, as long as you have that record keeping in place. And that's why every speaking engagement that I do starts with a lecture about record keeping for the people record keeping is the foundation of literally every strategy that i use with my clients
1: i'd love to hear that lecture for myself and it's for the listeners as well but do you have a best practice or a way to log those hours if if we are a, a real estate professional we're claiming that do you have some best practices for logging that time
0: i always tell people whatever's most comfortable for you What you're going to use, because I can give you an app, say, for example, and you might hate it and you're not going to use it. It could be anything as simple as a pad of paper that I write, keep in my car and write write down my hours every day. It could be an Excel spreadsheet. It could be some sort of app that I'm using. I would rather have a good piece of paper than an app you didn't use. Right. So I'd rather have a good spreadsheet. And the same thing goes with record keeping for anything else. I can tell you what the best thing for you to use would be, but if you don't want to use it or
1: you're like, this is too hard or whatever, I would rather have it written down on a piece of paper. I agree completely. Done is better than perfect. Or done is better than not done. So, Ted, why don't you share a little bit of that with us as far as the record keeping? Obviously, it's so important and or, or else you wouldn't share it every time. Right. Maybe you can share a little bit of that and enlighten us on some record keeping tips. Record
0: keeping is the foundation of all of the tax strategies that we use. And there's a lot of opportunities out there. The IRS, especially with the new 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there's a lot of opportunity for real estate investors to take advantage of the tax laws. But there's also The thing that Congress put in there was a record-keeping requirement. So if you're going to take real estate professional status that you want to log, if you're going to deduct your miles, you want a miles log. If you're going to take the home office deduction, you better have a good spreadsheet that shows all of your housing expenses.
1: If you're going to take the qualified business income deduction, you better be able to show that you qualified. We hope that you have enjoyed the highlight show today. You can always listen to the full episodes that were featured today by clicking the links in the show notes page in the, in the description box. Let us know in the comments what you thought of this episode, or you can go to lifebridgecapital.com forward slash podcast and click the feedback button. Let us know how we can add more value to you. Thank you and talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital.